Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode four in our Thessalonians Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled, Living, Dying, and Rising for the Glory of God, where we'll discuss 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? What an exciting chapter we're about to study, Wes. Um, I guess I would summarize it in this way, living a life that's pleasing to the Lord and getting ready uh, to die and to rise again in glory. We're going to talk at the end of this chapter about the rapture, so that's going to be very exciting. But before that, we're going to talk about what kind of life uh, pleases the Lord, and he's going to talk about absolute sexual purity. Mm-hmm. It's a life of, of brotherly love, genuine affection for other brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's a life of hard work that wins the respect of non-Christians that watch you. Mm-hmm. So we're going to see all of that today, and then we're going to talk about the rapture, so that's going to be pretty Well, I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 18 as we begin our discussion today. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In verse 1, Paul reminds the Thessalonians about some earlier instructions he had already given them. Why do you think there's such a need for continual repetition of biblical instruction, even for those faithfully following Christ? And what's the significance of Christians being both encouraged that they're already obeying, Mm -hmm. but also being urged to do so more and more? All right, so first on the issue of repetition, it's because we're forgetful. Uh, we do forget. We, um, we don't cling to God's word as we should. We don't cherish it the way we should. And so we let things slip away from us and we forget. And so in general, um, you know, good pastors, uh, disciples, parents 
are going to be continually giving many of the same instructions again and again. We're not like um, constructing a, a pattern of holy living from scratch uh, week after week or, or reinventing the wheel. Some things were just reminding people of things they already knew, like they need to have a daily quiet time. That quiet time should consist of Bible intake and prayer. Um, and other other matters, you need to go to church. If you're able-bodied and healthy, you need to be there on Sundays. You need to share your faith. Just different things. It's like they've heard all these things before, so we've got to keep reminding them because we forget. Secondly, though, a very important question you ask, and that is uh, the need to encourage and affirm people um, in terms of obedience that we are seeing up and running. It can be very crushing and discouraging to make an effort in a certain area and have your mentor, your pastor, your spiritual leader, your father or mother, never say anything good about the things you're doing. Mm. They just don't even seem to notice. Now, we shouldn't be doing it for the praise of others, but we do as mentors and leaders and parents use praise to encourage and motivate people. And Paul does that beautifully here, both in verse 1 and verse 10. He uses this phrase more and more. Um, he says, you are doing this. You are living a life that pleases the Lord. But we're asking and exhorting and urging you to do it more and more. So the idea is you've, you've made progress, and we see that. God is at work in your life. Be encouraged. But don't rest on your laurels. We're climbing to a summit. And, and, you know, yeah, there's a scenic vista here. We're resting, taking our packs off, stretching our legs for a minute. But we're not going to stay here very long. And it's time to, to put the pack back on, take a last swig of water, and, and then get, get hiking again. And so that's the more and more language of sanctification. It's like, it's not, no, it's not good enough. Not yet. So when I say it's not good enough, please don't think God hasn't done anything in your life. We do see it. I am seeing it. But it's not enough. We mm. need to keep moving. Yeah. And if you say it's never enough, no, well, the standard is absolute perfection, complete conformity to Jesus Christ in all respects. You're going to be climbing this mountain your whole life. You're not going to reach the summit. Yeah. And then God in his goodness will scoop you up and plop you right at the top of the summit in glorification. In an instant, you'll be made perfect. So be encouraged. But in the meantime, you're going to get more and more. You're going to get the more and more language. Sanctification isn't done. Let's move on. That's so good. What is God's will for us in verse 3, and how should this assertion motivate us toward holiness? He says in verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Uh, most translations give that as what you have in yours. It says, uh, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification. Yep. So the idea here could be either that process by which we get holier and holier, or just that we are set apart unto God as holy already. Hmm. Um, either way really fits here. One is a dynamic picture, the other a static picture. Um, but either way, the idea is holiness. And the idea of holiness here is separation from evil. Because mm. um, he's going to go into sexual sin, which is a big issue for every human being. We'll talk about that in a moment. Mm -hmm. But it is God's will that you be holy. And so here's the, the basic concept. We cannot bifurcate our salvation in this way and say uh, Jesus is Savior but not as Lord, as though it's not important whether we're obeying Jesus' Lordship just as long as we accept him as Savior. Mm. That's a false dichotomy. What we want to say is, look, Jesus is a Savior from sin in all respects. And so he does save us from sin's condemnation and from the position of sin and all that in justification, but then we must be holy. There has to be a dynamic pattern of growth and holiness. So it is God's will that we be growing more and more, there's that more and more language, in holiness. And so, yes, once for all set apart to God as holy, but then we have to act like it, and specifically when it comes to this issue of sexual sin. 
And Paul also says, like you just mentioned, that it's God's will for us to abstain from sexual immorality. Mm -hmm. Why is this such a dangerous issue for people? And how can Christians take specific steps to live sexually pure lives? One could argue it's one of the most significant places of weakness in the human soul. Um, you know, John Bunyan wrote a great allegory of the Christian life called the Holy War. And he, and he um, it's not as famous as Pilgrim's Progress, but he pictures Christian salvation or, or Christian soul, I'm sorry, as, as a walled fortress. Um, and uh, the enemy, enemy forces, Satan's forces, Diabolus, he's called in the, in the allegory, is, is besieging the soul, man's soul. And assaulting it and there's different gates that he can kind of the gates are always the weak point of the wall and so i think of that in terms of holiness sometimes mm. we're, we're under siege the world the flesh and the devil so i look on the world and the devil as external to the wall and the flesh as an enemy internal to the wall like mm. a fifth column you know that's that's in cahoots with the besieging force and gets up at night and unlocks the gate and opens <laughs> opens it up so the forces can come in and murder us in our beds. So that's the, the image that I have here. Well, I would say that when it comes to sex, when it comes to the sexual area of life, you could picture pretty much that the wall is crumbled. It's not a gate at that point, it's a pile of rubble. Mm. But the enemy hasn't come in yet, they just are rushing to that breach and they're giving full attention to that breach. And if you're the defender of the, of the, of the city, like 80% of your soldiers are over there trying to keep the enemy out of that breach. That's the way I look at sexual immorality for us. We are weak in this area. And so from the very beginning, beginning, Adam and Eve ate the fruit and their eyes are open and they realized that they were naked and they immediately clothed themselves because of their feelings of shame and their nakedness. Well, clothing came in because honestly, we must cover ourselves because we can't handle each other's nakedness. We can't handle being unclothed. And so it just shows a tremendous mental um, and heart weakness in this area. We all could also can see, and I've already mentioned this to some degree, but say more specifically, Satan's effort in this area. Look at advertisements, look at the internet, mm. look at what's going on, how much of it is sex? Well, you look at the number of searches, that they tell us how many searches are tied to pornography mm. or something like that, and it's a, un, it's a staggering percentage yeah. uh, tied to sexual immorality. So we as Christians, and, and realize these Thessalonian Christians are being saved out of an immoral, sexually ad, immoral lifestyle in which part of their pagan religion was having sex with temple prostitutes. And then there was the general assault on marriage anyway, adultery going on all the time. Um, just expect it almost, although it's still every bit as damaging and grievous in pagan cultures, but it was just going on. Mm -hmm. And so along comes the gospel and the call is holiness. Yeah. We're done with all that. One man, one woman in covenant marriage for life, enjoy sex. Other than that, abstain absolutely. There's no exceptions. That's the Christian standard. Yeah. Before we move on to look at verse four, right. what are some practical ways that we as Christians can deploy that 80% of our troops to defend that uh, that breach in the wall, so to speak? It's such a, mm -hmm. such a vulnerable area for us. What are some practical ways we can defend against the onslaught? Well, we start with, uh, with alertness. We have to keep watch over our souls. We have to watch our lifestyles. Um, so you have to watch and pray hmm. so that we'll not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak, Jesus said. Uh, so now Peter there was dealing with his fear for his own life with arrest, but I think we can do that with the sexual side too. Watch and pray. 
So in our quiet time, say, Lord, I am weak in this area. Please don't tempt me beyond what I can bear. Mm -hmm. It's like the Lord's prayer. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from, literally it says, the evil one, from Satan. Yeah. So be aware that Satan's gonna come at you. Then look at your habits. What are you doing on the internet? What mm -hmm. are you doing with your smartphone? What are you doing with your eyes? Um, you know, what places can you go and not go? Maybe you can't go to the beach or the pool mm. because of the way people, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, let's be honest. Women's bathing suits break all the rules of dress anywhere else in the world. Mm. <laughs> if a woman wore that to church or wore that walking down the street or in the mall, you need think she'd be arrested or something mm. like that. But on the beach or by the poolside, it's okay. Well, mm. our eyes haven't changed at all. So we have to, and then the flip side is that women have to be aware of those things too uh, and how they dress, et cetera. And so just men and women together need to be continually vigilant in this area and watch their lifestyles. Single men, single women need to make an, a commitment to absolute purity. Um, so I don't know, there's a lot to, that could be said about this, but just start with an, an, an intense focus in prayer. Memorize scripture. I did that a lot as a single man. There were verses that helped me mm. walk in holiness mm -hmm. in this area. And Paul also says that God wants Christians to know how to control their own bodies in holiness and honor. It seems like this is an issue yeah. of self-control, self-denial. How can Christians learn this vital lesson? And yeah. how do the devastating falls of people around us mm -hmm. help us to redouble our watchfulness in these areas like you've just mentioned? Yeah, I really do think this, these verses are teaching self-control. Um, and so the idea is the more you indulge sexual sin, illicit sexual sin, the hungrier you'll be for it. It's like someone said, it's like slaking your thirst with salt water. Mm. You know, moments later, you're raging in your thirst again. Um, it just doesn't satisfy. So I think what you have to do is, first of all, you just have to put sin to death. Romans Romans 6 through 8, these are the number one chapters on, on sanctification in the whole Bible. And central to that, those chapters are mortification or things you must not do, sins you need to put to death. And the basic strategy in Romans 6 uh, through 8 is death by starvation. Mm. So you basically are going to, let's use that besieging image, you're going to besiege your own lusts and starve them until they're weak. You're never gonna kill them. Hmm. That's one thing you have to realize, you cannot kill any categorical sin. You cannot say, I know that I'll never look at internet pornography again. I know that just is impossible. The moment you say that, you're done. Hmm. You're gonna, you're, you know, whoever thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. So take heed means I know I could fall in that area before. It's like an alcoholic saying, I know I'll never get drunk again. How do you know that? Hmm. The only way you can know that is to think you might very well get drunk this very evening and you need to be vigilant. So the idea is you're gonna put sin to death, death by starvation, and the good thing is the further your last violation of your, of your um, conscience in this area is in the rear view mirror, the weaker its pull will be on you. Mm -hmm. So that's some hope. So you can be a year from now much more in control of your body than you used to be. Um, but you just have to be absolute about it. Say, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to make any compromises in this area. You should possess your body in self-control in a way that's holy and honorable. So. In verse 5, Paul zeroes in on the passion of lust, like mm -hmm. Gentiles who do not know God. Right. What is Paul talking about here, and mm -hmm. how do bad habits increase the power of temptation sure. over a long period of time? This may be the, the mirror image of what you were right. just talking about. Well, this is where we need to look at what health is in this area and what disease is. So here he's saying, we're talking about disease, passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Mm. Well, it's definitely sexual. What does he mean? Well. What then is healthy desire, sexual desire? And obviously it's within the context of marriage. Um, 
I remember hearing Elizabeth Elliot talking with humor about she was asked by a Christian book publisher to write a book on on sex and the single Christian. And she said with a laugh, it'd be the shortest book in history. There's nothing to say. But obviously there's some things to be said about protecting yourself and mm -hmm. all that. But you know, she was making a point, absolutely no, absolutely not. But even within marriage, you know, you hear sadly stories of men that still struggle and women too with pornography, even though they're married. And so what ends up happening is that pornography makes you intensely selfish in your, in your sexual drive and desires. Whereas a genuine, healthy marital desire for your wife or your husband, if you're, you know, sexually is, is a desire to give, to give pleasure to the other person, mm -hmm. a desire to make yourself available to what, what pleases them sexually. That's a good thing. That's what the Song of Solomon is all about. Healthy sexual desire. It's not evil. It's not wicked. It's not twisted. Adam and Eve were naked and they knew no shame. They were, they were together. They were one flesh and there was no sin. So that's health. Uh, so I would say the twistedness is the self-focus and it's all about my pleasures and I don't care what I need to do to get it. I don't care who I look at or what, who I offend mm -hmm. or what the cost is. That's what this raging fire of passionate lust is like. Don't be like that. Rather, sex is meant to bring a man and a woman in marriage together to one flesh and a beautiful union, a oneness where I care about you and love you. You care about me and love me and we come together. Hmm. Now, what do we learn about the effect and consequences of unchecked lusts in verse 6? Well, he says, um, he talks about uh, in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. And then it says the Lord will punish uh, men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. So let's take, you know, horizontal, vertical. First of all, sexual sin is devastating horizontally. You could imagine, you know, a man who commits adultery with his, his Christian brother's wife like in the church. How can they continue in fellowship after that? What, what, is the, what are the ramifications? I mean, how could they continue? How could it ever be? I mean, you just, I can't see it. They have to be in different churches. They can't ever interact again, I guess. You say, well, Christian forgiveness is like, yeah, but it's, this is, this is a special case. This is one of the reasons why it's allowed, you're allowed to get a divorce because of how difficult it is, to, even impossible to forget and to forgive even. Mm -hmm. Now, there's always forgiveness, but Proverbs says, look, if you, if you sleep with another man's wife, he will not accept payment. He will not accept anything because of the, the, the righteous rage of, of the violation. So you should not wrong your brother or take advantage of him. What that means, take advantage, it means that in Christian fellowship, you get close to women that are not your, your spouse. You get to know them, you should. That's healthy Christian fellowship. You should have good conversations with Christian sisters and all that, but you should have boundaries too. Mm. And there needs to be clear boundaries set up. So you should not wrong your brother or take advantage of him. But then even worse, it says that God says he's going to punish all such sins, as we've already told you and warned you. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the adulterer, nor the effeminate, or there's this list in 1 Corinthians 6 of sexual sins, mm -hmm. will inherit the kingdom of God. Because of these things, God's wrath is coming, he says, very plainly. So vertically, you're in danger of the wrath of God. Now, what does verse 7 teach us about the Christian life? And how does verse 8, following right on its heels, show us the seriousness of all these commands? The calling of God here is the call of the gospel. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. So we've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. Well, what is darkness but sin? What is the wonderful light? No sin. So we call from swimming in a cesspool of sin 
to being in a world in which there will be literally no sin and we won't sin ever at all. Mm. That's what salvation is. So for us to say, well, I believe in Jesus, but I also have this lifestyle issue or I have these things. It's just, no, that's you're called out of every sin. The Holy Spirit calls you out of, out of every sin you know about. He has not told you every sin you're committing. But he will, you know, maybe not all of them in the in the finite lifespan, but because our sins are so pervasive and so so overwhelming. But the Holy Spirit fights sin on all fronts, and whatever the Holy Spirit convicts you of, you need to fight and you need to be aware. Now, when I said that a second ago, I want you to realize what I mean. The Holy Spirit knows the scope and and dimensions of your sin completely, but he doesn't show everything to you all at once. So we can be walking along in certain patterns of ignorance and sin, and then we hear a convicting sermon, and from then on, we live differently. Maybe about finances, Mm. about giving Mm. to missions, or or about some prayer pattern. It's like, man, I have not been living right from then on, but the Spirit didn't convict you until that time. But here's what I'm saying. God has called us not to be impure, to mix in a little bit of poison along with the healthy drink. Nobody would drink it. Or a little bit of spit in with, you know, uh, the, the iced tea. It's like, I wouldn't drink it at all. And so the idea is we are called to be pure. And the word pure really is a perfection word. Uh, so the goal is to have no evil whatsoever, to live a holy life. And verse 8 says, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who mm-hmm. gives his Holy Spirit to you. So yeah. just adds the weight and sure. seriousness of what we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, this is far. apostolic instruction. We can't yeah. set this aside. Well, that was just Paul's opinion. No, no, hmm. you disregard this, you're disregarding God. God is the one who's giving you this instruction. And the Holy Spirit is speaking through me to you. And he's now, we as readers of the scriptures know the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the author of First Thessalonians, not Paul ultimately. Hmm. Now, you mentioned this more and more idea in verse 1 and that it shows up again in verse 10. And as we look Mm -hmm. at verses 9 and 10, what's the next topic Paul brings up? And how does the more and more aspect of sanctification discussed earlier help us to understand this command here? Well, now we're talking about brotherly love. And so brotherly love is a strong theme, a vital theme. Uh, So 1 Corinthians 13, it's all about love. You remember in those three chapters on spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, right in the middle of it, it's like, yeah, you know, the gifts don't mean anything if you don't love each other. If the gifts are not in service to love, then they don't mean anything. So we want you to have a deep, sincere, open love for the brothers. Maybe the strongest book on this is probably 1 John where he says, look, if you don't love your brothers, you don't love God. Anyone, anyone says, I love God, but doesn't love his brother, he's not seeing God. Mm. And now he's saying that he, he doesn't love his brother whom he has seen. So you need, we need to love each other. Now, here's the thing. People are hard to love. People are sinners. They make mistakes. They mess up. We've got to give and receive forgiveness. But about brotherly love, he says, we've already, you want to have to write it to you. you already, you, you're already doing it. But here's that more and more language. We know you're already loving the brothers, but we ask you and urge you to do it more and more. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, this is what's, this is what's happening. You, you have a love. They have a love not only for their own city and their own people, but any Christian everywhere. And you've had it, Wes, I know that experience, I've had it, where you meet people who you've never known before from other cultures and you immediately love them because you love the same Jesus and the same Bible. Yeah, I shared that with someone even just today. You know, North Carolina culture is not so much different than Kentucky, but when we first moved here with no connections, there's just a sweetness to knowing the common bond we had in Christ with brothers and sisters we met when we first came. It's a sweet thing. It is. Now, we had a great conversation about verses 11 and 12, and I'd love for our listeners to get kind of a sense of what's wrapped up here in these verses. What aspiration does Paul set before the Thessalonians, and how does this help us understand different callings 
for different people and really what we're called to as we follow Christ. Right, so there are three patterns of of Christian living that he gives us, the third of the three. The first is holiness, oh, sorry, um, sexual sexual purity, sexual, not sexual immorality. And the second is brotherly love. And the third is this idea of your lifestyle, your daily lifestyle. I think specifically in terms of your profession, uh, the state of your property, uh, the state of your family, your reputation among outsiders, how you're living your life. <coughs> and so what Paul wants them to do is to lead, he says, a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so you won't be dependent on anybody. Mm. So that last statement is kind of the key. You're working to support yourself and your family. Mm. You're working so that you can earn money and you don't have to lean on somebody. You know, we talk about the widow's list and how it's vital for the family to step up and take care of the widow, not the church. The church should only take uh, care of those that no one else is there to take care of. Mm. Why? Because it's a big deal to pay food, clothing, and shelter for a human being. It's given to the family, and specifically in this case, to the head of the family, the, the husband, the father, to be diligent and hardworking to support his own family. And so that's what I would say, um, is that the hard work goes to support your own family financially. But it's also evangelistic here. The idea is that people are watching how you live, mm. and they know you in the, in the village, or they know you in the town, or the city even. Mm. And they, and they know your life, and so that you are able to lead some neighbors to Christ because you're leading such an honorable life. And he says a quiet life. And the idea of a quiet life here is you're not a troublemaker and you're not a meddler. You don't get involved in other people's <laughs> affairs. You're not a gossip or a busybody or any of this kind of stuff. So you're just leading godly life. Now here's what we discussed. He, he introduces it with um, ambition language. I don't know what your translation says. It says uh, to aspire, aspire. to live Aspire. So aspiration, ambition. All right, so here is, um, in my translation, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. So this is a Greek um, verb, philotomeo, uh, which means the love of honor. You should have the love of honor and it's used three times, and it's very insightful, um, the three passages that use this verb. The, the most important is 2 Corinthians 5, 9, when she says um, that we make it our ambition to please the Lord. No matter what we do, we seek at every moment to please the Lord. That's what we want. But then in Romans 15, 20, Paul says, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not named, so I wouldn't be building on someone else's foundation. So he, is, he has the ambition there of being a trailblazing, church-planting apostle to the Gentiles, going some whole uncharted region to bring the gospel as a trailblazer there, yeah. all right? Now here we have a very different life calling, which is to settle down in your own town and work hard and raise your family. Yeah. Those are very different callings. So there's one calling for every Christian, please the Lord. Mm. But then there are these different callings that he has. Maybe you're called to be a missionary, maybe you're not. But if not, if not the one, then do the other, that kind of thing. Now the word, the love of honor, implies reward. It implies that the Lord will honor you by doing this, if you do this. He will notice, he will see what you do. He will record your good works in his record book and he will not fail hmm. to give you honor. Now the idea of honor is one of esteem. It's one of being held up 
such as, have you considered my servant Job? Mm. So it's the idea of God holding up the individual for everyone to see. Look at my faithful servant, Wes. He lived to please me. And he also then pours out his pleasure on you. He expresses his pleasure. Well done, good and faithful servant. The key text on honor, I think, is in John 12, 24. He mm. says, where I am, there my servant will be, and my father will honor the one who serves me. So that means he's going to pour out esteem on you if you will serve Jesus. Now that serving may be in the case of being a missionary, a courageous life of going to some other country and leading some people to Christ, or it may be here in this text, lead a quiet life, settle down, work hard, raise your family, be a witness right where you are. Either way, God's gonna honor it. Well, these last six verses, uh, verses 13 through 18, deal uh, with the second coming of Christ. They're some of the most famous verses in the epistle uh, to the Thessalonians. How does healthy doctrinal instruction on the future help us live godly lives now? All right, well, it's vital for us to have a solid eschatology or a view of the future. We, need, we are future-oriented people. It's just part of being human. It's not just part of being a Christian. It's part of just being a human. If you are convinced that you have nothing good left to live for, you'll mm. want to die. Mm. I mean, that's just, that's sometimes what, why people actually do commit suicide. They just are utterly convinced that nothing good is left for them. And so we are forward-looking beings. We Christians especially should be excited about the future because we have the promises of God. And so this text will give us some very clear information about what's coming. And so it is vital for us to, to have our sense of the future stocked up with biblical truth so that our hearts are filled with hope. Hope is a feeling in the heart that the future's bright based on the promises of God. So we should be filled with excitement. Now, what was going on with the Thessalonians is that there was a false teaching mm. um, that the day of the Lord had already come, that they had missed it. That's one of the aspects. Or that if you die before the Lord comes, you're lost. Wow. Now, you imagine how depressing that would be. Yeah. Not only are you burying a loved one, mm. but you think they're lost. They're going to hell. Everyone you bury is going to hell. Everyone who dies is going to hell. So that's very opposite of, of our culture, which we assume everyone who dies is going to heaven. Right. You know, it's what uh, R.C. Sproul called justification by death. <laughs> you know, everybody who dies wow. goes to heaven. It's hmm. universalism. So, but they had the false teaching that people who died were at a, a massive disadvantage, if not lost, entirely lost. Mm. So Paul's saying just it's just not true. So one of the things that this affects is the way that we as Christians grieve. Well, why is it vital for Christians who are grieving the loss of other Christians not to grieve like those who have no hope? Well, that's, yeah, what we were just saying now, our hope, our hope just goes beyond the grave, so far beyond the grave. I believe in three levels of hope. There's eternal hope, and there's long-range hope, and immediate hope. It just has to do with the time frame. And so eternal hope is beyond the grave, mm. all right, beyond death. Uh, Long-range hope is now until you die, and short-range is, you know, later today, <laughs> this weekend, <laughs> or vacation next month. So at any rate, and the idea is hope is, again, that feeling that the future is bright. So if we, for this life only, are hoping in Christ, we are to be pitied, Paul says. So mm -hmm. no, there are, most of our best things are yet to come. So we die filled with an expectation that the best is yet to come. So we wanna, then those who are still remain who are the loved ones who are doing the funeral, we have to show our faith that we believe that our Christian mm. loved one is in heaven, waiting for the resurrection of the body, absent from the body, present with the Lord, but 
Like Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, perfectly happy, free from sin forever, filled with hope. And we should put that on display so that any non-Christians that come to the funeral can have the same hope we do by believing in Jesus. Yeah, that's so good. Now in verses 14 through 17, what doctrinal insights does Paul give concerning the second coming? And what do we learn from these verses about the rapture being caught up in the clouds? Okay, so first of all, in verse 14, believe, we believe in Jesus' resurrection. And so we believe God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. In other words, let's just go to the issue of resurrection. Just because they died doesn't mean anything about their eternity. Okay, now realize they have some unique problems we don't have. They were the first generation Christians. So they had some false theology that we have long since moved on. Mm. Because if you die, you go to hell. That's Christianity isn't going to be very popular at mm. this point because it's been going on for 20 centuries and the overwhelming majority of people who have been Christians have died. Although there's a lot of Christians alive today, so I don't even know if that's true. But a lot of Christians have died. So we don't deal with that, but they had that false teaching that if you die, you lost. Mm. So here he's saying, no, no, no. Jesus is, uh, is our resurrection of life. As he says, he who believes in me will live even though he dies. Mm. So first he is dealing with basic resurrection theology. But what does he say? God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep uh, in him. So what does that mean? We're going to join Jesus in some journey he's making. He's going somewhere and there's a destination and he, God, is going to bring with Jesus those who have, here's that language, fallen asleep in him. That means they're dead Christians. They died in Christ. God is gonna bring, bring those dead Christians with Jesus. That's what he's saying. What then do we learn about uh, the rapture in these verses? We were talking a little bit about mm -hmm. this beforehand. Uh, how should we think about verses 15 through 17? All right, so Paul's about two things. One is he's saying that the dead in Christ are at no disadvantage. And the second is he talks about the rapture. So let's first establish the point Paul's making, which is no, there's no disadvantage for dying hmm. at all. As a matter of fact, they're going to proceed. We who are still alive and are left will be caught up later afterwards. Now at the same time, but second, like top priority, the dead in Christ. Second priority, those who are still alive and are left to the coming of the Lord. So the idea is no disadvantage at all for dying whatsoever. Okay, so that's his first point. Second point is some details about something called the rapture. So what is this? Well, according to the Lord's own word, we, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. So they're not at any disadvantage, those who died. Mm -hmm. For the Lord himself, listen to this, will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. I know you're smiling because it's like, this is a big show. Uh-huh, big show. Lots of people, everyone will know about it. Big noise, big show, big second coming. Hmm. All right? So the Lord himself, and, and that's what we're talking about, the coming of the Lord, verse 15. That's the parousia, the second coming of Jesus. That's what this text is talking about. I'm very clear about this because there's a teaching generally acceptable among evangelicals of something called the secret rapture, hmm. that Jesus comes like a thief in the night, which he does a phrase he uses other places, but he comes like a thief in the night and steals the bride away. Like, uh, what's that, that song? Uh, isn't there, uh, who, who sings that, that Christian song? Um, oh, no. Uh, while, we, while we were sleeping. Oh, is that Casting Crowns? Casting Crowns, Casting while Crowns. we were sleeping. That's a, that's a secret rapture song. Mm -hmm. Love, beautiful song, but. It is. At any rate, <laughs> based on the secret rapture doctrine. 
At any rate, so um, this is talking about the second coming of the Lord. And so the Lord himself will come down from heaven. This is the second coming of the Lord. And I think it's important in Matthew 24, it says, if anyone says, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, or he's out in the desert, he's in the inner room, don't believe it. Hmm. What does he mean? For as lightning that flashes in the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Here it's big noise. Uh, it says, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God. Big noise, big light. He's coming with big clouds, big show. No one will miss it. Mm. That's the second coming. And the rapture happens then. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. There's no doubt about it. The second coming, we are caught together with him. Now, here's the thing. I believe with the rapture, someone's doing a U-turn. Either Jesus is doing the U-turn or we, who are caught up with him, are doing a U-turn. Hmm. What do I mean by U-turn? There's a point A to point Z or point A to point B journey being traveled. Jesus is coming back. Well, where is he coming to? The earth. Where is he coming from? Heaven. So he's coming down from heaven to earth. What's he coming to do? Read about it in the book of Revelation. To beat up on the Antichrist and destroy all the wicked forces arrayed against his people and rescue them. That's what he's coming to do. But I'm not going to get into all that. That's Revelation 19. With a sword coming out of his mouth, he is coming to kill people. He's coming to slaughter the wicked and to save his bride. So he sends out his angels and they will gather the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the heavens to the ends of the earth. It's very clear about this. And they gather them up. But here this text says they get the dead first. So the dead rise and they go up and they meet the Lord in the air. And then those who are still alive and are left are caught up. That's what rapture means, to be caught up. We don't know how to fly. Angels get us and pull us up. And so we're caught up and we meet with dead Christians and all the living Christians in the air to meet the Lord. But what's he doing? Mm. He's traveling. He's coming. Is he coming to get us and go back up into heaven, that's the secret rapture teaching, so he does the U-turn and we just travel up with him, or he's coming down to earth to do something and we go up and meet him and turn around and go back with him to do that thing. Hmm. I think it's the second. He's coming to destroy the Antichrist and to establish his kingdom forever. Hmm. He's coming to do that and we join him and come back down with him. Almost like some have said, a delegation going out from a city to meet a coming emperor and we go back with him into the city as he comes into our city, that kind of thing. We're, well, we're like the welcoming committee. We come up and bring him and he comes back down to the earth and then we fight with him, although he doesn't need us to fight because you get the sword coming out of his mouth. So that is what I believe. It's an open, plain display of the second coming of Christ and him gathering his people with them. And these aren't just abstract theological themes that we're to think about in our minds and not really do anything with, which right. Paul says as much in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Yeah. How should we think about that? And what final thoughts do you have for us on chapter four? We should immerse ourselves in eschatology. We should study it. We should learn it. We should make sure it's sound, reason things through. Like on the secret rapture, I know it's incredibly popular. I know why people teach it. They teach it so that we can be ready at any moment. It could be tonight. I get it. And, the, and if uh, careful theologians look at 2 Thessalonians 2, and which we'll talk about God willing pretty soon, and, and it talks about the man of sin, the Antichrist, but we're not seeing that. That's not happened yet. 
And so how can we be ready tonight for the second coming of Christ if we haven't seen the Antichrist? Mm -hmm. So they say, ah, the secret rapture is the answer. Jesus could come tonight and snatch a, snatch away his bride like a thief in the night. Mm -hmm. That's where the thief in the night. The thief in the night teaching helps people be ready at any moment. Well, I'm saying be ready at any moment anyway because you might die tonight, mm -hmm. heart attack. You might, you never know when your day is over. But in terms of this, as I just read this rapture passage, does this seem like a secret thief in the night thing? Yeah, it seems to be hard to miss this. This is big, loud, everyone hears it. And this is noise, whereas the lightning in the east, visible in the west, is light. It's big light, big noise, second coming. No faith needed. Jesus comes back. So I just say, and the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15, it's definitely a simple second coming resurrection happens. Mm. This is the resurrection, by the way. This is the dead rising. Mm. And this is us being transformed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. That's what it says. So for me, I find the secret rapture teaching untenable biblically. I respect people that hold it. I know why they do it, I think. Um, there's lots of details here. But what I would say is eschatology fills us with hope. Think about it. Think, look, this world is not my home and just be ready for the second coming. Well, thanks, Andy. This has been episode four in our Thessalonians Bible study podcast. We invite you to join us next time for episode five, where we'll discuss 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 11. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.